Hi guys, sorry for the background noise. I just wanted to hop on really quick and give a content warning. We talk a little bit about trauma and quite a bit about relationship anxiety. Um, That's all the warnings for this episode, so I hope you enjoy. Hi all, and welcome back to Mindful Minds. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today, we're going to be chatting about relationship anxiety and codependency with Chelsea Horton. How are you doing today? I'm doing swell. It is a beautiful spring day here, and it just has my spirits all the way up. <laughs> yeah, it's where are you? Where are you located? Um, so I'm in Southern California, but I'm up in the mountains. So we do okay. get snow and cold weather here. Okay. I'm in Seattle and it's actually also very pretty today. It's been like the sunniest day that we've had in a long time, um, which I'm, that's on my list today is to go for a walk with my pup, um, which for the listeners, Miss Stevie Ray is with us again. Um, she will potentially make her appearance. She's napping right now. So if you hear clicky clacks in the background, I apologize. Um, but yeah, so Chelsea, your page is healing embodied on Instagram And, um, I wanted to kind of give you a little bit of a chance to talk about your background, um, your page, how it got started and kind of what your goal for that whole platform is. Sure. Um, yeah. So my Instagram is healing.embodied and I started my professional journey. Um, I mean, I got my bachelor's degree gosh, when did I graduate? (laughs) 2013, I graduated with my bachelor's in counseling. And then I got my master's in dance movement therapy and counseling. And I'm now a board certified dance and movement therapist, which means I've done two years of clinical therapy work that's supervised by a professional. Um, So that's my professional background. But personally, I myself went through just the hell and the torment of relationship anxiety really intensely from 2014 to 2016. And then it paid me a visit again in 2019, I believe. Yeah. Yes, that's correct. (laughs) And so I started Healing Embodied as this uh, journey of mixture of my professional self and my personal self like where does dance movement therapy merge with my own experience with relationship anxiety and I created healing embodied as a way to share the the healing as I call the healing magic of dance and movement therapy um, for those who are also going through what I went through I love that. So did you have a background in dance prior to choosing this as your career or was it something that just kind of piqued your interest? Um, I had done dance, but I never was in any sort of professional company, but I I loved dance. I was in musical theater, always super creative. And so I remember when I got my bachelor's in counseling, I was like, I just don't see myself doing anything traditional where I'm just in a room talking like I I want to find a way to bring in this creative side bring in movement and I essentially like created my dream career and did some research to see is this a thing do I need further education for this and I found dance movement therapy and counseling and like oh my gosh if a career was me it would be this 
Right. So how, for those of us who don't know what that is, which is me included in that group, what exactly (laughs) is dance movement therapy? And like, how does that work if you're in a clinical setting? If you were to go to a dance movement therapist, like what would that look like? Yeah. So uh, I know a lot of people have heard of music therapy or art therapy. So dance therapy is one of the creative arts therapy modalities. There's art therapy, music therapy, dance therapy, drama therapy. Um, so it's the use of this creative modality to foster emotional awareness and health and to foster psychophysiological changes. And so I like to describe dance therapy as a mixture of creative arts therapy and somatic therapy. So bringing in the body, the awareness of the nervous system, how emotions are manifesting, not just in your thoughts, but in your body on a physiological level as well. And so um, I've worked at psychiatric hospitals, uh, outpatient facilities as a dance movement therapist. So I was always the, uh, the unicorn of the clinical team. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> but so essentially clients come to me and bring the things that they would to any traditional therapist. But instead of just talking through the problems, we're doing things like identifying where the emotion lives in the body. How do you respond? How do you feel? And we also bring in creativity. If you could give that emotion a color or a movement or a shape, what would that look like? Just bringing the awareness in like a three-dimensional level. And then we're using the body and movement to literally express, release, or shift that emotion on a deeper level. Gotcha. First of all, that's wildly cool. I have a background in dance and I danced for like 12 years as a kiddo. And so that's something that I have found in a, and just in my personal life when I'm feeling really manic or when I'm having a really hard time, um, not going to a dark place. I, that has been something that I like, well, I know certain songs that I just like kind of have to dance to and I'll like intentionally put those on and be like, okay, we're going to cry and we're going to dance at the same time. (laughs) Like we're going to try to see if this just like lifts my spirits a little bit. Um, but yeah, that's very interesting. So in a, in the context of relationships, how would dance movement therapy be used to kind of work through relationship anxiety or, um, even just anxiety in general? Yeah. Lovely question. So For me and in my approach, and even in all of the research in the last 10 years, we're learning that anxiety, trauma, these things aren't just in our minds. Our bodies are actually storing these things. It's happening on a physiological level. And when I was experiencing anxiety, yes, the thoughts are the things that we pay a lot of attention to, but it's the physiological experience in our body that makes the experience feel so distressing. So, you know, in my work with relationship anxiety, we're getting to understand the nervous system, which is living all throughout your body and understanding how anxiety impacts our nervous system state, which is impacting directly how we feel in our physiology. And so if we can learn how to first identify what pattern we're in, in our body and in our mind, and learn ways to use our body to shift our internal physiological state, that puts us in 
into a feeling of safety. And when we can feel safe, that's where relationship happens. But when we're always being triggered into fight or flight or shutting down and disconnecting and feeling numb, it becomes very difficult to relate to another human. We actually have to feel safe internally to be able to open up and be vulnerable and trust and connect uh, and relate. So that's, that's how we apply it to relationship anxiety. Gotcha. So is a lot of that just kind of the same methodology that would come from like any type of mindfulness with trauma of trying to kind of release like tension that is in specific parts of the body? Like, will you target certain parts of the body based on the anxiety or trauma or mental situation that you're dealing with? Yeah, that's definitely one component of the work. We're identifying, okay, when when you get these thoughts and it puts you into that anxious spiral about your relationship, drop into the body. Because what often happens is we go into the thoughts and we get so caught up in the story. And next thing you know, we've been ruminating for an hour and we're like completely dissociated and dysregulated. So we go, oh, when you notice that pattern starting, drop into the body. Where do you notice it? What does it feel like? What's the quality of it? what's happening uh, underneath the surface of your thoughts. Right. So is that something that um, it's interesting that this is kind of the direction that we were, were going in? Cause I didn't think this was the direction that we were going to go in, but it fits very well with mindfulness and with just trying to be present and aware of your body. Um, and is that something that I'm sure there's dancing that happens in your actual sessions, but is that something that, um, you're also teaching for people to take home when they're, you know, having, and I guess a question would be in a, in a realistic situation when you're not in the comfort and safety of a session or a therapist's office or whatever, or even a dance studio, if you're in an everyday situation and we can target it with relationships here and you're in a situation where maybe you're having a fight with your partner and it's the anxiety is at the center of that fight where there is like ruminations and assumptions happening how would you apply this type of therapy to a realistic situation? Would you just break out dancing or how exactly does that work? (laughs) Um, So you asked, you know, do we use mindfulness? And I like, you can think of mindfulness in this work as like the foundation or the thread that weaves it all together because building that awareness, bringing yourself back to present moment awareness Um, coming out of your thoughts and into the present moment, into your body, right? That is the pathway to shifting our internal state. So, and and there's a lot of misconception with dance therapy. A lot of people have the assumption, and rightfully so, there's not a lot of mainstream education on it. It's like, oh, you're just dancing your your feelings away, or you're dancing your problems away, almost like assuming it's about avoiding. But uh, it's called dance slash movement therapy because it it doesn't look like a dance class in any way, shape, or form. Um, And we also focus on things called micro-movements, right? It's um, bringing in the body in so many different ways, whether that's through creative expression, you're expressing the emotion through creative movement, or, okay, let's notice how you're breathing, let's notice what's happening in your gut, what's happening in your chest. So, like, if you're in a fight... Having that awareness of, oh, my body is going into that place that I've been becoming more aware of. What are some little micro shifts that I can make in my body? Oh, okay, let me just like feel my feet on the ground. Okay, let me just start to breathe. Let me just like whoo, roll my shoulders back just slightly more instead of feeling really closed off and tense. 
And when we begin to make these little shifts with our body, it impacts our neurophysiological state, which impacts how we think, how we feel, and how we respond to a situation. Everything is all so beautifully connected and our bodies are always communicating to our minds and vice versa. So if we're in the heat of the moment, if we're just reacting, right, we're going to react from that fight or flight place and we might yell at our partner or assume the worst. But if we can actually be aware of what state am I in right now? Oh my gosh, I'm going into full fight or flight mode. And I need to feel a little bit more safe and grounded to be able to hear and receive what my partner is saying instead of seeing them through this lens of fear and seeing them as this horrible monster. So if we can actually make little shifts to our internal state, we can say, okay, I can kind of approach this uncomfortable situation a little bit better. Right. Yeah. I remember at the very beginning of like my trauma therapy, mindfulness was something that we centered on like very intensely, I think for, for good reason. Um, but one of the first things that we learned was that like wild animals, um, don't exhibit like trauma responses in the sense of like, they're, they're not going to have like PTSD because they let trauma go through their bodies. And there was specifically a study on, I think it was a gazelle, that like got mauled by a lion and it was like wildly traumatic and like really graphic. And uh, the lion, I think like thought it was dead. And I think it was like a sport. Like it wasn't as much like he was hunting for food. He was hunting for just sport. And he brought the gazelle back to like his den and the gazelle like snuck back out of the the den and was like visibly injured (laughs) and went back, found its uh, herd and physically shook like out the trauma and then like they followed it for i think most of its life and it didn't exhibit like like ptsd right and i remember hearing that and being like oh and our our um group leader because i was in a support group so our, our support group leader who's now my therapist um was like yeah like if you think about dogs like we've domesticated them and so they have these trauma responses and these like that dogs can get PTSD because a lot of the times when you see your dog shaking or panicked, your initial reaction is to go over and comfort them and try to calm them down and like hold their body and like stop the shaking or stop the physical reaction that's happening to the trauma. Cause you're viewing it as like, Oh no, they're not okay. Like I need to comfort them. And she was like, that actually is like what traps the trauma in their body is you're stopping them from shaking it out. And so one of the first things that she told us, which kind of seems like it's on the same uh, pathway as like the micro movements, is if you're feeling like really tense and really triggered, sometimes even just like shaking your hands can like get some of that tension out. Because when we're feeling really stressed or anxious or whatever or triggered, our, like you said, safety is the goal. And so our body tends to kind of just like retreat to the center and just try to like tense up and protect our center and protect anything that can be harmed. Um, you know, like lock our jaw and like tense all of our muscles. And so she was like, and you often don't, you don't know you're doing it. And so if you just start to create this habit of like, okay, I just need to like, and for a while I was in a relationship during that period and we'd be in a fight and I would literally be like, I have to go shake. <laughs> like, give me a second. Cause I would feel myself just like, 
and I like didn't know how to like not tense without shaking. That was just like the way that I had learned it first and it was the only habit that I had thus far. And so I would be like, give me a second. Like I got to shake. And then I was in, I was a nanny as well. And I started learning that it's also a really good technique with kiddos. If you see your kiddo like starting to get really stressed out and they kind of start to go down that pathway of like, the whole world is ending because I can't wear my red dress and like, Oh my God, this is terrible. And they start, you know, ruminating and going down this path of just like destruction. I, I had so many times where I had a kiddo that was very, very anxious and we'd sit there and I'd be like, can we just like shake, shake it away? I'll shake with you. Like, we'll just shake really hard. And we'd sit there and like shake our bodies as hard as we could. And you could literally see like the tension, like melt away from their body. Um, and I think it's something that is not, like you said, it's, there's no really mainstream media surrounding this. And so I guess from your perspective, how would you, what advice would you give to people who maybe are starting this journey of mindfulness, starting to try to be more present in their body, but either have like a shame around movement or are nervous about, Oh, am I going to look silly? Or, Oh, is it going to, you know, kind of all of those different societal perceptions that might be causing them more anxiety while they're trying to combat it? Yeah, it's such a great question. And nearly every single one of our clients has that because it's, it's so ingrained in our culture. We're such a disembodied culture, like Western civilization. It's all very cerebral and cognitive. And, and we, we learn from a very young age, like don't feel, <laughs> sit still, right? We, we learn to just right. ignore our own body's natural ways of moving emotions. And so a lot of clients are like, oh, I'm going to look stupid. I'm going to look silly. Da, 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 da. And we kind of just, instead of bulldozing through that, we say, whoa, let's like look at this pattern here, uh, this fear, this fear of being vulnerable, right? Because being in our bodies is very vulnerable. And one of the underlying patterns of relationship anxiety is fear of vulnerability. What if I open my heart and I get hurt? So we, we first bring that awareness just to that. Oh, you're having some fear of being vulnerable or doing something, taking a risk, doing something different and getting hurt, being seen as silly or foolish or feeling uncomfortable. What does that feel like in your body? What does it feel like to be afraid to be vulnerable, to be afraid to take risk? Just notice that, be with that and see if you can just gently breathe with that and just let yourself kind of experiment, explore and just try a little bit, just a little, little bit out of your comfort zone, right? We don't want to completely dysregulate the system. So it's like, okay, you're having this stuff come up. We don't want to invalidate it. It's not wrong that it's there. It's part of your protective mechanisms or things that you've internalized, so notice it. How does that show up in your body? Can you be aware of that pattern, which is very often linked to the pattern of relationship anxiety? And can you just begin to explore? And using that word like play, explore, also that begins to shift some of the fear and allowing the discomfort to be there. And I tend to, when I work with new clients, I tend to say, this is going to feel silly. Let the silliness be there. Let the awkwardness be there. Um, let let the stuff come up because it's revealing where your work is. Right. And how like like fulfilling too as an adult to be able to like go back and kind of activate your inner child a little bit. Cause it's so we are taught 
even there's, I mean, it was so ingrained in our brains, even in school of, like you said, like, sit still, be quiet. And any kids that maybe were not entirely neurotypical and were having problems with that were often like shunned or shamed or seen as disruptive or bad kid. Right. Right. And I, I worked with, um, the disabled community for a, a while, specifically with kiddos. And I remember having a kid that I was working with who, so I think there's so many solutions to psychological, uh, like conundrums, I guess that are very out of the box and, but are often like the best solutions that are like very out there and kind of bizarre. Um, even I remember reading something about a girl who had really bad anxiety about her flat iron being left on. And she was like, I just like, every time I leave my house, I like, can't, like, I think it's still on. And her therapist was like, take your flat iron to work with you. <laughs> like pack it up in your backpack and then you can look in your backpack and it's there and you know, you're safe and you're okay. And it seems kind of like a goofy, like out of the box solution, but a lot of times they're very simple. They're just not mainstream solutions. And there was a kiddo that I was working with who was, had a lot of anger management issues and was having a really hard time. And like, I could, like there was tension in his body. And a lot of times when you see it's, it's often more, I think, visible in kids because they don't entire their their sense of expressing their emotions is not entirely like stifled yet. <laughs> and so they'll have their little like meltdowns and he was having like a really hard time and he kept like stomping his foot and like, you could tell he needed to like get something out. And he had a habit of hitting and kicking and like being aggressive. And so I was like, do you want to scream? Like screaming's not going to hurt anyone. Like we're outside that's not going to hurt anybody. It's better than you hitting yourself or hitting a friend or hitting me. And I was like, do you want to just scream? And he was like, am I allowed to do that? And I was like, yeah, for right now, like we can scream and I'll scream with you and it's, we'll make it work. And he was like, okay. And I was like, okay, ready? And like we went one, two, three. And we both just like screamed. And I should have warned my co-teacher because she came running out and was like, is everything okay? And I was like, we're screaming. Like, don't worry about it. Sorry. Good. Um, and he, you could see the tension that had like left his face. And I was like, do you want to do it one more time? And he was like, yeah. So we screamed and then we both were like, all right, do you feel any better? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, okay, are you ready to go inside now? And he was like, I think so. And I was like, all right, cool. Let's go inside. And it wasn't like the ideal solution, but it was a baby step towards a solution. And I think that's a big part of it too, is a lot of us expect ourselves to just take these gigantic leaps and then just be fixed. And it's like, okay, every your your system isn't going to be able to go from zero to a hundred and all of a sudden eliminate all anxiety. Like it, it's going to be a constant little baby steps towards a solution. Um, which once again, society doesn't really encourage. We like instant gratification and fast solutions and, you know, this'll help you in 24 hours or whatever, 24 days. And, um, but yeah, so I'd love to even dive deeper into relationship anxiety because we've mentioned it a few times. But for those listening who don't know what relationship anxiety is or how it manifests, could you give like a quick definition of that and kind of what it looks like in general in relationships? Absolutely. Absolutely. So relationship anxiety is having the experience of fear, overthinking, 
doubt about your relationship, whether that's fears of you having to leave the relationship or fears of your partner leaving or fears of something bad, quote unquote, happening to the relationship. So this can manifest in so many different ways, but many of my clients and for my experience as well, experience it as doubting if you're with the right partner, doubting if, you know, are they the one? How do I know? Is this going to last? Are we just going to get divorced down the road? And, and those thoughts not just being something fleeting, but something that really distresses you and causes you to show up in the relationship from fear-based behavior rather than being able to just relax in the relationship and trust and be present and go with the flow. It, it causes, you know, we have the thoughts, we have the feelings, and then we have the behavior. So it's this whole pattern um, that feels really scary. It's really scary because relationships are really like what life is all about. And so to be able to not be able to enjoy a relationship or embrace a relationship is really distressing. Yeah. And so, um, obviously this could occur in a romantic relationship, but what would this look like in maybe a friendship or a family relationship? Yeah, it could be like constantly worrying what the other person is thinking about you. Do they really like you? Or, you know, are they going to betray me? Are they the best kind of friend? Is there a better kind of friend? Or even, you know, with family members, like kind of questioning the foundation or the stability of the relationship. And, and again, showing up in the relationship kind of with these fear-based behaviors, whether it's clinging or avoidance or chasing or putting up a wall or being defensive. These are just some of the examples of what it might look like. Right. So um, if you are the person in the dynamic that is experiencing relation, relationship anxiety, how can that... Um, how can you approach that and try to work on it or try to, you know, get, get out of that state and then vice versa. If you are on the other side of that and you have a partner or a friend or a family member that is experiencing really intense relationship anxiety and you're kind of the recipient of that anxiety, how, how do you approach that? Yeah. So with relationship anxiety, I'll just be really real. It's something we have to take like radical ownership and responsibility for because when we, when it goes unchecked, we just project it onto our partner, our friend and our mind makes them the problem and so then we treat them that way. And so to really begin to overcome relationship anxiety, first we kind of have to have that okay this is my stuff. I've got to take ownership of it. I'm going to take responsibility for it and get support in some way. Get connected to a community, um, take a course, work with someone, get a therapist, get a coach, get support because relationship anxiety at its core is a protective mechanism. So it's very stubborn, right? It thinks that you need it or else you're going to get hurt or something bad's going to happen in the relationship. So it doesn't just go away with willpower. Um, it's something that we really need to dig into and do deep healing. And there's lots of different 
contributing factors, or as I like to say, lots of different ingredients to the recipe of relationship anxiety. So we need to become really aware, take ownership of those, practice new patterns, and again, get support because sometimes when we're in it, it's so confusing and we don't know what's us and what's the relationship anxiety. So having support will help you have that reflected back to you and have a lot more clarity and therefore be able to identify your patterns even more and and know what to do and how to work through that. So that's what I would say to someone dealing with relationship anxiety is kind of roll up your sleeves, do the messy work. Even if you have the most perfect partner in the world, if you have relationship anxiety, the most perfect partner isn't going to make it go away or fix it for you. Your relationship anxiety will latch onto anything until we really take that ownership and work on ourselves and work on these patterns. And then go ahead. Oh no, go ahead. So for like, so then what would you do if you're on the other side of it? And if you're someone that your partner is potentially projecting that anxiety at you, or you just are seeing their anxiety manifesting in them? Yeah, my, (laughs) my heart goes out to those on the other end. Um, and I think about my husband <laughs> in the beginning of our relationship who just took all the shit. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but something, you know, I look at him as, as this model of how to be a partner in a relationship with someone with relationship anxiety. And for him, he would just listen uh, he didn't seem to take it personally. And I know it's so much easier said than done. Like he was able to see through it and be able to see, okay, this is Chelsea when she's in her, in her clear state. And this is her anxiety. And he would point out to me the times, Chelsea, this sounds like anxiety. He would, he would kind of be the mirror for me of like, right. when, you, when you're in yourself, when you feel like yourself, this is how you feel about us. And right now you're in this place. And oftentimes what I just needed from him was just a super tight hug because I had so much fear in my body and and that connection, just knowing that someone's there for you and feeling the safety and the stability of the relationship. I would just like cry and the fear would, it would help the fear to soften of like, I have this person who's here for me, even when my brain is telling me that they're like, you know, they're not right for me and all the nasty things my brain would say about him. Um, And also he would give me space when I needed space because sometimes I did need to just have him leave the room or go run an errand while I would just go into the room and just move or shake or breathe um, or call a friend or whatever it is that I needed to do. He, he gave me that space and he didn't try to fix or control. He, he never tried to fix me to make me, um, feel a certain way. He was just this stable support system of, I know how I feel about you. I know what we have is solid and good and worthwhile Um, so I'll be here when you need a hug. I'll be here when you need space. I'll be here when you need me to tell you, uh, Chelsea, I think anxiety is talking here (laughs) and be that mirror. Yeah. So I've, I've experienced, um, relationship anxiety specifically in a relationship that was also, uh, abusive. So there was, there was a lot going on in my brain, but I know for me, 
Um, my, my biggest problem in all of it was this obsessiveness and this, like these intrusive thoughts and the rumination where, you know, I'd get into a headspace and this thought would be so persistent that I'd like have to go share it with my partner. And, um, I would start to just obsess over things and like, you know, even asking the same questions over and over again of like, okay, well, like, are you sure you don't like, are you sure you're not? A, are, I ask, I do this a lot in all of my relationships. I'm constantly asking, are you sure I'm not annoying? <laughs> are you positive that I'm not annoying you? Are you positive that I'm not too much? I have a very intense insecurity with being too much. Um, and so I, it's like a constant, I just constantly need reassurance. And a lot of the times that can get really exhausting for whoever is on the other side of that, because there's also then kind of this sense of like, okay, well, do you not trust me? Like I'm, I'm telling you that you're not annoying me and that I love you and that I, you know, want to be in this relationship with you or even in this friendship or to be hanging out or whatever. And I I don't, it, it's, it can get frustrating to keep having to repeat yourself. And so what would you say to that type of a situation where maybe the partner is not as comfortable as be, just being the soundboard and is not as comfortable with just listening and maybe what, like listening to all of that doubt coming from your partner or your friend is actually then harming you. Yeah, yeah. And now we've got harm on both sides. What do you think like a, a better solution or even kind of an alternative game plan would be for that type of a situation? Yeah. Uh, Matt is my husband is a very special breed and I don't know how he remained. So he's like, I feel like he's from a different planet because he's just so secure. Like, right. <laughs> and not everyone can like hear all these doubts and fears and be like, I love you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I wouldn't be able to do that at all. I know I would no, hear me and be like, you think what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think this is where um, boundaries and communication are essential. Um, and being able to have set these boundaries before your partner is in a really dysregulated state where they won't be able to hear it or receive it. Having conversations like, if you ask me more than three times, if I really love you, I'm going to say this, or I'm going to suggest, why don't you talk to your therapist about this? Yeah. The the redirection can be wildly helpful. Yeah. Or I'm going to, you know, remind you, hey, you're doing that thing where you're obsessing um, or saying, I need space, right? Like I need space when you're doing this. When I'm feeling overwhelmed by your asking me 17,000 questions, what I need in those moments is for me to walk outside for just a few minutes. And when we come back, we're not going to keep saying that same thing and we're going to try this instead. So boundaries and communication, I mean, in any situation in a relationship is just essential. Right. right. So how would you as the person who's maybe getting into that obsessive mindset, which from people that I've spoken to who have suffered from relationship anxiety, it seems like the, the obsessiveness over like one thing seems to be a really common theme, whether that's like, do you think I'm not pretty enough? And there's just like a constant, like it just, you just keep asking it and you can be with the person for three, four years and it still will just like randomly this intrusive thought comes in. And I think that's also where this differs from just like general, like just kind of primal anxiety of it just 
everyone deals with insecurities. And so there's always going to be some point in a dynamic where you think, oh, do they really like me? But I think that that's where this differs from that type of just kind of normal anxiety to when it's like this persistent, constant questioning where it's all, it just keeps coming up. And so if you're in that situation, which I've been this person, so I'm asking it even partially for myself for learning purposes. But when you're in that situation and you have that conversation, even if it's something where you're in a relationship and you've dealt with this relationship anxiety and you're trying to kind of get to a healthier spot and you're trying to say, okay, we need to sit down and we need to do boundaries. If you're the person suffering from the relationship anxiety and a boundary is presented to you and you agreed on that boundary, but now in the moment you really need reassurance and your partner is saying, I can't give that to you right now because I'm feeling really overwhelmed and I need to take a step back. How would you, what advice would you give to the person who maybe their ego is now a little bit bruised or maybe they're feeling even more rejected or even more insecure because they realize that, oh, they're, they hurt their partner's feelings or they, they made their partner overwhelmed and now the wheels start turning again. What, what's the advice for that person? And I'm speaking for myself here entirely because I have had this happen so many times where the boundary set and we agree on it. And then we get in a situation and I'm single right now, but I've had it with many different partners and the boundary gets brought up and I'm like, fuck, I did agree to that. But I really need to know if you think I look pretty <laughs> and, I, and I start like spiraling again. So what, what's the advice for that? How do you self-soothe in that situation? Yeah, two things. Going back to the radical responsibility and ownership and working on it outside of the relationship because your partner cannot be your therapist. Your partner cannot be your only source of soothing. Um, so knowing that you're working on it outside of just telling your partner what's going on and then having your own game plan when, when that boundary is set by your partner of, Hey, I need some space. You have your game plan. Um, so you have like your toolbox of, okay, when I'm feeling incredibly triggered about what, you know, does my partner love me enough or not? We're, we're trying to get reassurance to feel safe. Everything comes down to every behavior is I'm just trying to feel safe. And if I could know for sure that my partner loves me or thinks I'm pretty, then I'd feel safe. So when we have the awareness of, I do this behavior because my nervous system is in a state of threat and I'm trying to feel safe. What are some alternative things that I can do to help myself feel safe when I am like totally spiraling, when my body, my heart is racing, my pits are sweating, my stomach's in knots? What are the things that I, what are my go-to things when I'm in that state and actually practicing them, practicing them when you're not anxious so you can build that muscle memory and practicing them when the test comes, when, when you are anxious. It's like studying. So you're constantly practicing your own self-regulation tools, uh, understanding your own anxiety. Something that's so important for me is dialoguing with my anxiety. And I've practiced that so much that every time I have anxiety come up, my first instinct is, what is this anxiety trying to tell me? What does it need from me? Instead of what does it need from my partner, right? What does it need from me? So this is, these are new patterns that I've rehearsed over and over and over and over. So practicing these tools consistently so that when the test comes, when you're anxious and triggered and dysregulated, 
you have easier access to those tools because you've been practicing them. And you're like, oh, there's my heart rate. Oh, there's my tension. Oh, these are the signals my body are giving me. And I've practiced this pattern going from tense to calm so many times. So I know, okay, I'm going to go do this thing. I'm going to go for a walk. I'm going to go in my room. I'm going to shake. I'm going to blah, blah, blah. I'm going to talk to my anxiety. I'm going to ask myself, what do I need from me instead of partner, partner, partner? I, I need it from you. So yeah, the, the radical responsibility and ownership, working on it with someone, as well as having your game plan, your consistent practice, studying for the test so that when the test comes, you're prepared. Yeah, I found that that was a huge uh, challenge was whenever in any situation, whether it's relationship anxiety or whether it's um, I suffer from like mania. And so whether I get really manic and I start to obsess over something I have realized when I'm in that moment and I'm already dysregulated, I cannot remember what I was supposed to do. <laughs> I'll be sitting there and I'm like, oh my God, like I, and it's, I won't even remember that I don't remember. I'm like so worked up that I'm so centered on whatever I'm obsessing over that I will then remember like an hour later after I've come back down, like, oh, I was supposed to like go draw or like go do something. And for me, it often has to be some sort of physical release because I think that when it's just something more minor in a creative release, if that's like, um, you know, drawing or like sewing or something, I, it's not enough energy that I'm, that I'm outputting. So I, I, and I think that that's part of it too, is with any urge, it doesn't last forever. And it's just like with any type of like, even if you're overcoming an addiction, a lot of the same techniques are applied where you try to have something else that you kind of distract yourself with because that urge is not going to last forever. And so in the moment it feels like, Oh my gosh, like the only thing that's important in the world is that my partner tells me that I, that they love me and that they're never going to leave me. And then that, that will like dissipate, but it can take a lot longer to dissipate if you don't get that energy out in some way. And one of my things is I got a punching bag because I was like, I have to hit something and like get something out where then I'm tired. And then I'm like, I don't even remember what I was like, like worried about and I'm not worried about it now and I'm okay. But I think the other thing that was so helpful for me, which you've mentioned of your partner and we'll transition this into codependency as well, but your partner can't be your everything essentially. And for me, every time I had a problem, every time I had an intrusive thought, whether it was about my partner or just about my trauma or my life in general, I would go to my partner and basically just present it on a platter of like, here, I need you to fix this for me. And, um, it was, I constantly need reassurance. I constantly need you to like hold my hand through all of this. And I was always a very independent person. And so it really caught me off guard that in a relationship, I kind of turned into this, like, almost like child that just like needed this constant like reassurance and like I needed my hand to be held through everything. Um, and one of the biggest things for me was learning to kind of have other people on speed dial. Yeah. Of like, I need to call my mom. (laughs) I need to talk to my mom about this and work through it with my mom. Or I will sit here and I will call my partner 40 times if he's not answering his phone and I will just keep calling him and calling him and calling him and calling him. And then here we are an hour later and I've come back down from this like manic state of obsession. And I look at my phone log and I see that I've called him 45 times. And now I feel absolutely terrible because <laughs> I feel like kind of crazy and awful. And I know that I'm, that I just went way over the top, but I, I wasn't able to stop myself in that moment. I like it happened. I had the realization and the self-awareness after the fact. Um, 
And so with codependency, obviously relationship anxiety can lead to codependency, but if you are already seeing it in your relationship, and this is something that I've struggled with a lot, how do you how do you walk that back of trying to kind of walk back from the codependency and reset and try to start your relationship and kind of reset your relationship in a way that is independent and that there isn't this like need for one another that's unhealthy? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean... An important part of relationship anxiety work or relationship work is, yes, the self-soothing, the symptom management, knowing the tools, but it's also going deeper. And our attachment styles, how we learn to be in relationship is often impacted or was created from experiences in the past. And we develop these patterns of, I need you to fix me or please rescue me or I feel unsafe, whatever it is, however you show up in the relationship. This pattern was created somewhere. And usually under this pattern are deeper pains and wounds and messier, bigger emotions that actually need to be felt. And the anxiety and these codependency patterns are just the way to try to protect you from ever feeling those things. So if you grew up in a household where you couldn't uh, trust mom and dad, they were unreliable. Sometimes they were there, sometimes they weren't or they were distant, or they never said I love you, or they were critical, right? You probably have some pain there of relationships. I can't fully trust them. I can't feel secure in them. And so we kind of have to rewind and say, whoa, 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 where did I learn this? How is it serving me? Okay, so if, if I learned that love isn't trustworthy, that means I have to cling to it so that it doesn't leave me. Um, And therefore, I have to make sure all the time that my partner loves me. So the behavior is is the surface. We go deeper. Okay, where did I learn that love isn't safe? What, What purpose is this behavior serving? Oh, it's keeping me from being abandoned. What? Where in my life did I experience some form of abandonment, physical, emotional? Oh, oh, well, shit, my mom, blah, 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 or my dad left or my parents got divorced wow, I never got to process that because my parents weren't emotionally available enough to be able to hold space for my emotions while they were going through their own shit. And so it's like, I actually have to grieve and feel that pain so that this protective mechanism doesn't have to keep coming up to protect me from perceived re-experiencing of this pain. Because when we grieve, it's like kind of flushing out old emotional energy and creating space to create something new to make room for a new way of of being and a new way of relating. So a lot of times we do have to go back and say, where did I learn this? Why is this pattern here? Why am I clinging to my partner? Why why do I have a hard time trusting myself? Okay, whoa, I gotta grieve some things. I gotta feel some pain. I gotta I've gotta um get support so someone can hold space for me to feel these things while feeling safe and supported. And from there, we can rebuild from a new foundation, one that isn't based on abandonment or mistrust or uncertainty. Right. So if you're even further, if you're in a situation where you're you're working through that and you're you're trying to, you know, kind of rediscover this sense of independency and like interdependency within a Mm -hmm. relationship how, what are some techniques that you would suggest to, um, take a step towards independency and kind of being your Mm. own self again, without feeling so 
incredibly attached and unhealthily attached to your partner. Yeah. Practice meeting your own needs in lots of different ways. Um, when you're, and try it on a smaller scale, right? We, we kind of have to like weight train here, start with the small weights and then we can get up to the bigger and bigger weights. We're not going to be able to just right. pick up a 350 pound right. weight right off right away. So what are some smaller needs that you can begin to meet for yourself? Maybe when you're feeling a little bit stressed or something someone said at work in an email kind of pissed you off. Start there. The things that aren't like huge, massive triggers where you lose access to your rational brain. You're still aware, but you feel uncomfortable. How can you meet your own emotional need? Oh, I'm feeling stress. Okay. How can I meet my need in this moment? What do I need? Okay. I need to move. I need to breathe. I need to stretch. I need to go make myself a delicious snack. You know, I need to like, how can I meet my own need? And then um, practicing that in lots of different ways, emotional needs, physical needs. Okay. Um, instead of like something like, instead of waiting for my partner to tell me what they want to eat, you know, can I just go and make myself a snack? Like, like even this, the little ways that we can become aware of our own needs and begin to meet them in smaller ways. And then once we feel really comfortable with that, we can do that with bigger needs or more uncomfortable emotional reactions until we are really building this muscle of, I can trust me to meet my own needs. And I, I trust that I know what I need and that I'm capable of meeting it. And if I can't meet it, I'm, I trust that I can be resilient and resourceful and find ways to meet it. Yeah. And I think that that sets you up for success as well, because like they're, they're not all relationships do last forever. And so if you're in a situation where your partner is your everything and you don't know how to meet your own needs, I went through that where I was in a really codependent relationship uh, to the point where I had never, I was uh, suffering severely from like panic attacks and I'd never had a panic attack without my partner. And I remember like the first panic attack I had, like without him being there after we'd broken up, I was just like, I'm going to (laughs) die. Like I literally don't know how to do this without him being here. I have no idea how I'm supposed to make this work. And it would have been so much easier if there had been baby steps along the way of me kind of rediscovering my independency and discovering that I can survive like without him being in my life and that I I wanted him in my life and that was why we were in a relationship but like I I didn't need him for just to survive like I could survive without him and I would be okay and instead of being able to take that kind of baby steps towards that I got thrown into the deep end where then I'm having a panic attack and I'm literally like, oh, I'm going to die. Like, I'm not going to be able to deal with this without him. And it was also so wildly fulfilling. And I think so much more fulfilling than having your partner just fix something for you to be able to come out on the other side of something and say, holy shit, I just did that. And have this like really severe sense of pride of, okay, like I can do this. We can make this work. I can do this. And it really does start to just like, develop a relationship with yourself where you have so much more confidence in yourself and you feel so much more pride and just like even achieving small tasks where it's like, look at me, like I was able to do that. Cause it, it can be really hard to retrain yourself to start to, you know, relearn basically how to live without someone, or even if you're still in that partnership, relearn how to live your life without needing your partner for everything. Um, And so I guess even moving forward with that, 
if you're currently, if you're a listener and you're currently in a relationship and maybe some of this is resonating with you and you're thinking, Oh, maybe, maybe this is something that I deal with. Maybe my relationship is kind of like inching into these waters. What are kind of the things to look for or to be aware of, to see if, you know, maybe this is something that you're dealing with. And then how can you just overall start off a relationship or even kind of reset a relationship just to work towards building a healthier relationship in general? Mm, Yeah. Some things to look for, basically just recapping what we've been sharing is behaviors of clinging towards or pushing away or like distancing that are happening quite frequently. We're all going to have times where we, we like just need that. We need some space or where we're just like, baby, I need you right now. Like that's normal. But when it, you're starting to notice that it's becoming more and more distressing toward, for you and your relationship, where it's starting to create this like wonky uh, dynamic in the relationship, you're either putting up walls or you're noticing you're feeling more and more disconnected. Also be aware of your thoughts. Um, you know, are your thoughts becoming obsessive and repetitive? Are you thinking about them for multiple hours? Um, and are they creating an uncomfortable reaction in your body that you, you're not really sure what to do with? Do you find yourself googling relationship blogs and comparing your relationship to others more than you would like to and it's becoming you know distressing or it's impacting your ability to be present in your life these are some things to look for where it's really starting to impact your daily life um and your other question was what are some things to do after that yeah yeah just like even some like little kind of mini steps to kind of look towards building a healthy relationship and even just kind of in general, even if you're seeing maybe really micro, uh, aspects of this, maybe you're not in the full throes of relationship anxiety, but you're starting to see patterns or you're starting to see it kind of creeping in. How do you just start to, I know communication and boundaries is a big one, but even, even we can go back to mindfulness. Like if, if you were to give advice to someone, one tip, to try to just help build their skills of connecting to their body and grounding themselves on just a daily basis, just like an easy starting point yeah. home base. What would your advice for that be? I would say put a reminder in your calendar first and foremost, because building any sort of new skill takes consistency and automatic patterns are just easier to default to. So put it in your calendar, like make a commitment to yourself of like, I'm going to work on this for five minutes a day, uh, whether you start your morning like that, or you end your day, or you do it a little afternoon lunch break for five minutes a day, I'm going to stop, I'm going to close my eyes, and I'm going to take inventory of what's happening in my body. Maybe you've been like working, 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 or you've been on autopilot, or you've been stuck in your stuck in your head all day, set that reminder, like an alarm in your phone, check in, check in, right? A lot of, one of my clients did this, like, and a reminder on her phone, are you in your head or are you in your body? Okay, this is her signal to check in. Ooh, oh, wow, I just realized I was holding my breath, okay? Ooh, oh, I just realized my, like, my shoulders are kind of up towards my ears. Oh, I just realized that like, my chest is kind of tight. Like, Take inventory without judgment. It's not right or wrong that you feel this way. 
take inventory and ask yourself, what shifts would I like to make? How can I help myself feel more at ease or a little less tense or more safe or more grounded or, or more like myself? And then explore those things. There's no right or wrong formula. Okay, if you notice you haven't been breathing for the past hour, take some deep breaths. If you notice your shoulders are kind of creeping up towards the ears, roll them back. Stand up, stretch, bend over, like roll your neck. Like this is your time to explore meeting your own needs and shifting your own internal state in just a super easy way that you can you can check in with yourself like this a bunch of times throughout your day because it's just easy, simple. What's going on inside me right now? Is there anything that I need to do or shift um, to help myself feel? more in a state of flow and a state of presence do I need to like get my eyes off my screen and just kind of like look at the trees outside right there's no right or wrong way it's just being able to ask yourself and explore and maybe you try something okay maybe I can try this and you're like ah, that doesn't really work that's okay just keep trying exploring it's all experimentation it's all play there's not a perfect formula you will explore what feels best for you. And once you find some things that feel really good that work, then you keep practicing. I'm like, oh yeah, that felt really good when I did that the other day. Let's do that again. Right. I think that's a big one too. Cause a lot of the times, even in mainstream media, I think like the only really representation of this is kind of like apps like Headspace where like, I know some people where like, that's like the only resource that they know of. And it's like, I hated that. <laughs> like, I hated everything about that. I couldn't stand this guy's voice. Like, I didn't like that he was like whispering in my ear. I didn't like it. I don't know how else to find mindfulness without this Australian guy like speaking to me. And it is like a very much so a trial and error process. Um, and that can be really tricky too, because it can be kind of discouraging if something is working for a lot of other people and you're having a hard time finding something that works for you. Um, but I am, I'm a big worksheet uh, person. I love worksheets and I think they're really fun. Um, but I will post a few worksheets and post them in the episode notes and then also post on uh, the Instagram story of just some grounding worksheets. And even there's some, you know, body scan scripts where you can walk through your body and say, Hey, how does, what do I feel in my chest? What do I feel in my head? What do I feel in my jaw? And start to walk down your body and try to figure out where the tension is and if there's tension there to release it. Um, and I think if all else fails, like if you are, if you do like to dance, that has always been a really easy one for me because the second that you start to just kind of like jiggle around and dance, a lot of the times the tension just kind of releases without you even realizing that you're releasing it. And especially with the pandemic and with people working from home, so often you're sitting on your couch or you're sitting in your desk and you're just, and you're, everything's tensed and you're just so in- incredibly like in your it's, I, I tend to pull everything like to my chest yeah. where like my shoulders will pull in, like my, my neck will pull down and kind of everything is just like centered in and you don't even realize you're doing it. And I think that's why the, like, I think the reminder is such a great idea. That's one of my biggest things is I, I will, you know, read something on Instagram and it'll, it'll be like a week of me being super stressed and tense. And I'll read something like, Oh, unclench your jaw. And I'm like, oh, fuck. Like, I have been tense for like an entire week and I totally forgot that, that was something that I was supposed to be monitoring. Um, and your brain has a lot going on. Everybody's brains have a lot yep. going on right now. And so I think it's understandable for people to not remember or for that to not to be their like number one priority or the number one thing at the front of their mind is 
trying to monitor their mindfulness or trying to be grounded or be present in their body. Um, but it, I think it really can help and it can help mentally. It can help physically. It's also not good for your body to just be tensed all the time. Just like physiologically, that's not good for your body. Um, but yeah, I thank you so much for coming on. First of all, I like, I love when I'm talking with someone and my brain is processing like actually like in real time of like, Hey, I do that. And that might be something that I need to reflect on. Um, but I wanted to give you a shot as well to kind of plug anything that you have to plug, um, your Instagram, your, even if you're accepting, uh, clients right now or anything that you've got going on. Yes. And thank you so much for inviting me. This has been like I said, I knew this conversation was just going to go so fast. <laughs> yeah, I had a feeling we wouldn't have a, ta- a problem talking about it for a while. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, what? We're at an hour? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I hang out mostly on Instagram, uh, at healing.embodied. I have a free Facebook group for those with relationship anxiety. It's called Moving Beyond Fear. If you feel like, oh my gosh, I've never heard of relationship anxiety, and I'm so alone, I'm so crazy, I'm the only one join that group because you're, there's 1500 people in it who all experience relationship anxiety. So you'll quickly see, oh my God, I'm not alone. <laughs> and then, yeah, we, um, I also have a, um, I have lots of really juicy stuff. I have a guidebook, um, a guide called how to change your relationship with relationship anxiety. Um, and it's a workbook cause you're talking about worksheets, a workbook. I'm a big worksheet person. <laughs> yes, it's a, it's a workbook and a, a guided audio. So you're getting, you know, you're writing, you're reflecting, and you're also, um, learning to practice, um, relating to your anxiety in a different way. Um, I have a digital self-study course called safety within that gives you embodiment tools, movement tools, um, to help shift the pattern. We have live group programs. Our core one is called Luscious Love. Um, and this is just giving you, it's like intensive school for relationships, for owning your own emotional uh, needs for self-regulation. So yeah, we have lots of good stuff to check out. Awesome. Well, I will link all of that in the episode notes and put all that down there so that if you guys are interested in any of that, I'm already like wanting to go look at the workbook. <laughs> like I said, I'm a worksheet person and I'm all out of worksheets currently. I had a book that I was going through and we've we've wiped it clean. Um, but yeah, thank you so much again for coming on. Um, I'm so glad that we are having this conversation and I think that for people who do feel alone or maybe weren't sure why they're, they felt like this in relationships. I think it's always really encouraging to hear that you're not alone and that there is reasoning behind why your brain is doing what it's doing. And there's also steps to help your brain function in a more healthy way. And you're not a lost cause there. You can, we can work through it. Um, but once again, thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you. Um, but yeah, guys, so that's all the time that we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate us five stars on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also follow the blog on Instagram at Serafina blog and visit us online at Serafina blog.com. And as always to end our time, this is quite fitting for this conversation. Um, unclench your jaw, take a deep breath and remember you can always learn, you can always grow and you can always choose to live your life in a more mindful way. I will see you guys next week.